You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women all over the country rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community, about the truth about functional medicine. Welcome, Mary. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. How's your weather? Are you guys starting to warm up up there? Not at all. It's like (laughs) March today. (laughs) We had the most gorgeous sky today, and it was like one side of the sky was bright, sunny, shiny. I mean, like you could hardly look up because it was so bright. And then the right side of the clouds were black. It was crazy. And then we, my sons and I got to our appointment at a doctor's today and we're getting out of the car and it was hailing. And I'm like, it's May. <laughs> what is happening? This is Utah, guys. Spring in Utah. Welcome. <laughs> I think we need to put uh, weather migraines on the podcast uh, list on the podcast docket, right? With all this crazy weather. It has been, but it was a pretty, I personally like rain, not so much snow, but I'll take a little bit of moisture. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Especially in the West. They really need it right now. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So anyway, what are we talking about today? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about functional medicine because this is a very common approach in the alternative medicine space. And a lot of people have either tried a functional medicine approach, are thinking about trying a functional medicine approach, have seen it advertised. So I wanted to spend some time today in talking through what is functional medicine and sort of what are the benefits of functional medicine, what are the negatives of functional medicine, kind of what are the weak spots, I would say, or blind spots of functional medicine as well, so that people can make the best choice for themselves. Right. Well, and to me, functional medicine, like, is such a vague term, but like, two minutes ago, I was like, okay, Dr. Leslie, what in the world is this? Like, what specifically does this mean? So give us the lowdown. Yeah, well, let me go into the history of functional medicine, because I think it's helpful to understand the history of it, because right in in the quote unquote alternative medicine space, there's all these different types of stuff. (laughs) You know, there's chiropractic and acupuncture and and functional medicine and naturopathic medicine, right? There's all these different terms and approaches and everything. So I think it's helpful. Everyone gets confused, like, where am I supposed to go? And who's, you know, like, what's the best option, right? Exactly. So functional medicine was actually started by a scientist named Jeffrey Bland. And he used to be the, I don't remember his job title, if he was chief operating officer or chief medical officer, he was kind of used to be the head honcho, if you want to call him that, of a supplement company called Metagenics. And I used to work for Metagenics, actually. When I was in naturopathic medical school for two years, I was the student sales rep for my campus. And so I was actually an employee of Metagenics for two years. And I wanted to work for them because they are well known as having some high quality. They're called 
nutraceuticals. They call themselves a nutraceutical company, not a pharmaceutical company, but a nutraceutical company. And the chiropractor that I worked with who helped me restore my health used their products. And so some of their products were helpful to me in restoring my health from migraines. And so I really liked the company. And when I found out that they had student sales reps at, they had them at all the different naturopathic medical schools, I had had my sights set <laughs> on working for them. And when the the woman who was their student sales rep, when she graduated from Southwest College, I stepped into the role. And so my last two years there, I was in that role. And so I got to meet Jeffrey Bland, go to many, many of their training seminars, and they're well known in the industry for having very in-depth training seminars and things like that. So I was able to go to those, which was a real nice perk. So Jeffrey Bland, he sort of founded what is called functional medicine. And what he did to sort of found functional medicine is he took two of the principles of naturopathic medicine. So like I talk about, there are three main principles of naturopathic medicine. I call these the three principles and I have my own sort of language that I talk about them in, but those, I pull that from one of the naturopathic texts called Philosophy of Nature Cure that was written about a hundred years ago that outlines the approach of naturopathic medicine. And there are three main principles of naturopathic medicine to restore the sick to health. And that's, that's how I practice. I help my clients work in those three principles to restore their health. So Jeffrey Bland took two of those three principles and kind of packaged them and called it, called it functional medicine. So it's sort of interesting that functional medicine is kind of taking some from naturopathic medicine, but not the whole kit. So right off the bat, when I look at it, it's an incomplete system because it's only using two out of the three principles. And so those two principles that functional medicine will work in is what I call the first two principles. Functional medicine will work on helping get the nutrients to every cell in the body and clearing metabolic waste material and toxins. Now, functional medicine practitioners don't use that wording that I use because that's my own way of kind of plain English talking about it. But basically, that's what they're doing. They're working within those two principles. Now, to identify what I call the blockers or missing pieces within those first two principles, they will run a lot of testing, what is called specialty testing in the natural medicine industry or alternative medicine industry. And we've talked a little bit about this specialty testing on other podcasts. There's some real problems with the specialty testing industry. Right. I will um, make a note to add that link to the podcast notes. Yeah, let's add some of those links. So the specialty testing that a functional medicine practitioner typically orders runs in the thousands and thousands of dollars. And yeah, it's quite expensive. And I do not run the testing, even though I have been trained in that specialty testing, I don't run the testing because it's not necessary in 90, 95 plus percent of cases. The symptoms that the body generates 
when there are blockers or missing pieces within those first two principles are very obvious if you know how to interpret them, if you know how to look for those symptoms, if you know how to read those symptoms. You don't need additional testing to identify those blockers or missing pieces. And again, functional medicine practitioners are not going to use the term blocker or missing piece. That's my way of talking about it. So even though I've been trained in those specialty tests, I don't run them unless there's a clear indication for it, that we actually need the data that's coming back, that the symptoms that my client's bodies are generating aren't enough, and rarely do I need that additional data. So functional medicine practitioners, they will run, when you go in initially, they're going to recommend several thousand dollars worth of testing is very typical. And then when the tests come back, what they do is they are sort of notorious for giving people a supplement for every single thing that's wrong, quote unquote, wrong on the labs. <laughs> I think I've been there, done that. You're like, you just told me I needed to take 20 supplements. I personally will forget. <laughs> like, you know, give me two weeks and I'll have forgotten that I even bought those supplements. A hundred percent. And I don't know about you. I hate swallowing pills. <laughs> Some of them are so, nasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the functional medicine approach also is sort of still manipulating the body's biochemistry and physiology. So they're using a natural substance instead of a drug to manipulate the biochemistry in the body so that the lab work looks good. And so they might have people take literally 30 supplements is not, I mean, this will happen to people with this approach. And then in six months, they'll rerun the couple thousand dollars worth of lab work again and kind of see, okay, have we manipulated the biochemistry and the physiology with the natural supplements? So I have two questions here. One, it, does that create the same problem as like a prescription where, oh, well, I'm taking this supplement and now I have diarrhea. So now I have to take that supplement. Like, do you, you know how like the prescription often creates more issues. So then you have to fix that issue as well. It can. People can definitely have an aggravating response to supplements for sure. Those can be a little different than what we call medication side effects. But so you can have an aggravating response from supplements. You could have side effects from supplements for sure. So sometimes, you know, people might side effects because the substance, whether it's a drug or a natural substance, because that substance is manipulating the biochemistry, it's now, now the body generates a different symptom. Now we call that a side effect, but yes, you know, people can take melatonin and be up all night because we're putting in an external hormone and then that's changing like downstream hormones, other biochemistry, and that can keep somebody up all night. Or really common, people will get a headache the morning after they take melatonin. That's real common, right? Because we've manipulated the hormones and the biochemistry, and now you got a headache. Yeah, exactly. So question number two is they rerun those tests, and they, I'm assuming, see that there's results on paper, but does that necessarily mean that the person actually feels better? Now you've really asked the critical question here <laughs> <laughs> because like we've talked about before, the lab work, it doesn't matter what the lab work says. It matters how we feel. Exactly. And this is notorious in, within functional medicine that they will manipulate the biochemistry 
with the natural substances, with the supplements, and then rerun the lab work at the patient's expense. And then the lab work is quote unquote good now, but the person still feels horrible. And this can absolutely happen because functional medicine does not operate in what I call the third principle, which is where the healing actually takes place. So if we just work on the physical aspect of the body, if we just manipulate the biochemistry and the physiology, people will not actually feel better. That does not actually heal the body. So in fact, I just, interestingly enough, I just had a woman book a free consult call to talk to me. And as part of that, I have people complete a health questionnaire. And she actually stated this on the health questionnaire. I have been to, you know, she listed all kinds of chiropractors, naturopathic doctors, functional medicine medicine doctors. And they tell me they don't know what to do anymore because my lab work looks okay after I took the supplements, but I'm still getting the migraines. And this can absolutely happen to people. And you can see why people get so gun shy about trying new things. I mean, the doctor's appointment and the testing and all of those supplements are not inexpensive at all. Not to mention the time wasted and the the pride that's hurt when, you know, you're supposed to feel better, but you don't. And again, when we are relying on blood work to tell us whether or not we feel good, it's almost like we failed a test. Well, your blood work looks good. I don't know why you don't feel. It's sort of like we have somehow failed the test. Exactly. So the functional medicine approach has been adopted by a lot of different practitioners. And the organization that Jeffrey Bland put into motion had a very, very sophisticated marketing effort behind it. And you can appreciate this because Metagenics, the company that he worked for, grew into and and still is the leading supplement manufacturer that functional medicine practitioners use. So they have a pretty big stake in the game here. Exactly. So when you have a an approach that sort of like says, let's run these labs and then we'll give you 30 to 50 supplements to manipulate everything that came back bad on the lab. And then you're going to get that from our company, right? You can kind of see where this is going. Yeah. And so when functional medicine was started, they had, a, like I say, they had a very sophisticated marketing campaign that promoted it to practitioners. So what Metagenics did was they started to sponsor and work with another company, if you will, another organization called the Institute for Functional Medicine. And so this was very closely tied to the Metagenics company and to Jeffrey Bland, who was heading it. And so it was sort of like a symbiotic relationship. And so the Institute for Functional Medicine would train practitioners in this approach of ordering this lab work and then saying, oh, well, okay, the, you know, the melatonin was this level, so add more melatonin and how to dose that as far as the supplements and so on. So they have done. And so the other factor too is the general public is extremely disillusioned with conventional medicine. When you go into the conventional medical doctor and you leave with a prescription, most people don't want to take the prescription. I certainly didn't. And so they're only taking the prescription because they're desperate and they have left the office in most cases, I mean, there there are exceptions to this, but most people feel like their medical doctor didn't really listen to them, didn't really put any effort into finding out what the cause of the migraines are or the other health concerns, and just kind of handed them 
a prescription that they give 95% of the people with that same complaint, right? They don't feel that it's customized or individualized, et cetera. It's so hard to feel like somebody is listening and really digging into what you have going on in an eight minute appointment, you know, like you're in and out of there so fast. And I absolutely love my doctors. I'm not trying to criticize like all of them, but like we talked about in the issue with, you know, the traditional medical field, that's how they have to operate because that's how insurance companies and all of that work together. And it's just really frustrating as a patient. Exactly. And so people leave the office dissatisfied, knowing that the prescription is a Band-Aid. And the functional medicine marketing took advantage of this and said, you know, we're going to find out what the root cause is, and we're going to run a bunch of labs. And in our culture, labs equals sophistication. Labs equals science. Labs equals you know, impartial data. Labs equals someone is investigating this. Well, it actually feels like someone's doing something for you. Exactly. Like- you know, many people go into their conventional doctor, you know, pleading with them. Could you just check my thyroid? You know, you know, and the medical, you know, the medical doctor says no. And so in functional medicine, they kind of took advantage of that. Like, okay, we're going to get the data. We're going to get all of this testing. And so when people are spending thousands of dollars of money on testing, they assume that the testing is accurate and is worth something. Unfortunately, like we talked about in previous podcasts, unfortunately, the specialty testing industry is rife with quality control problems. One company was even doing false advertising, stating that it was measuring things that it wasn't. Is there a recent Netflix show on that? Exactly, right? (laughs) That story is now sounding really familiar. (laughs) Yeah, right? So um, the specialty you know, when you're paying thousands of dollars for those specialty labs, you are actually not paying for very accurate lab work. I know this through my own experience of being trained in these things and then running them on patients. I have never personally done this, but I have many colleagues that have taken two samples from the same patient and put a fake name on one of the samples and sent them both into the specialty lab and got two different reports. That's so terrifying. Who is running the ship over there? (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, when you're paying that much money and most, most of the time this is out of pocket, you know, shame on the alternative medicine industry for doing this. But the functional medicine sort of marketing machine behind it, right, kind of exploited these issues within the conventional medical system. And when you go on websites of practitioners that practice this, they will say things, you know, like we're going to get to the root cause, we're going to, you know, do detailed testing, we're going to do the investigation, right? And so this is like addressing exactly what people are looking for. And so it, you know, it really appeals to people. And I know we talk about that a lot in the group. So like, we talk about getting to the root cause. So how does that look different when they work with you versus the other types of functional medicine practitioners? So this goes really to what I call the third principle. So in order for the body to function, have a shot at functioning properly, our cells have to have the nutrients that they need to function. And we can't be swimming in metabolic waste material, right? We can't be swimming in trash. So those are two basic, the most basic concepts in physiology. Those are it. Now, upstream from that, we have to do things to make that happen. I, when I work with people, I listen to 
the symptoms that their body is generating that they describe to me. And that tells me where we are blocked from getting the nutrients to the cellular level and where where we are swimming in metabolic waste material, right? The symptoms tell me that I don't need additional testing. So fascinating. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I did a lot of study with what we call an elder doc. He's retired now, but when I was in naturopathic medical school, I did a lot of study with an elder doc who stated this flat out. Because <laughs> in naturopathic medical school, we learn all of the conventional testing that your medical doctor runs, and then we learn all of this specialty testing. And I was in a course with him, and he was going over some of the specialty testing as it related specifically to neurotransmitter levels. And he stated, you know, you can just, you know, what's going to come back on the test if you understand what the patient's symptoms are. And I was like, okay, <laughs> then why are we running this $500 test? Oh my gosh. Can you give us an example? So, cause I'm a really visual person and, and like examples help me wrap my brain around things. Like if X, Y, and Z pops up, it means something like this kind of an example, or is that too hard? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So like, um, let's talk within this first principle of getting the nutrients to every cell in the body. So there are three main steps or three main pieces within that first principle. So we have to eat food with nutrients in it. Then we have to have proper digestive function so that our digestive tract breaks the food down and extracts the nutrients out of the food. And then we have to circulate the nutrients to every cell in the body. And the blood has to be functioning properly and have the proper carrier molecules and hormonal signaling and circulation to transport the nutrients. So a lot of practitioners will say, oh, well, we need to make sure your digestion is functioning properly. Let's do a stool test. So what does a stool test involve? That's a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> like, one. I don't want to think about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't want me to go into detail, do you? <laughs> I mean, you can, but. <laughs> right. But I mean, obviously, <laughs> right. You have to take a sample of your stool and, you know, prepare it so that it is preserved so that it can make it through the mail. And then you have to put it in the mail to the lab. Yeah, is it just me or do you always, does everyone else go, those poor people that get this mail? Like, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> signed up for that job, but. <laughs> and then nobody wants to take the sample to the post office because you have to put a sticker on there, you know, contains, you know, biological. <laughs> so then a report is generated that indicates if there's non-beneficial bacteria or fungi, microbes in the stool. So if somebody tells me that they have gas and bloating, uh, heartburn, and alternate between loose stools and constipation, I can guarantee you they're going to have some non-beneficial bacteria in their digestive tract. I don't need a test to tell me that. And so the testing, it might even give you a particular species. Oh, this is a particular bacteria, you know, offending bacteria species that's in the stool. Well, to correct the digestion, you have to, you don't kill the non-beneficial bacteria. That does not restore your digestive function. All that does is kill the non-beneficial bacteria. Why were the non-beneficial bacteria flourishing in your digestive tract in the first place? Because you weren't eating food with nutrients that beneficial bacteria like. You didn't have enough stomach acid production to break the food down properly. You didn't have enough pancreatic enzymes to break the food down even more properly in the small intestine. And then when the food doesn't break down properly, the food starts to rot inside of our digestive tract. Ew. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like if you leave food out on your counter overnight, you're not going to want to eat that the next morning. It's going to have started to break down, right? The bacteria and the fungi in there are going to start to break that food down on your counter. Well, the same thing happens in our digestive tract. If we don't break down the food fully, it starts to rot. And non-beneficial bacteria and fungi, they love rotten food. Beneficial bacteria, they like the nutrients that are generated or extracted when food is fully broken down. So to get rid of the bad bacteria so that they don't come back, you actually have to restore the digestive function and create an environment in the digestive tract that the beneficial bacteria like and flourish in. And the non-beneficial bacteria, the bad bacteria, they don't survive. It sounds really, really complicated. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm like, you've got this down to a science, obviously, you know. Well, so the point is, I can determine if somebody's digestion is working properly or not. And if they've got bad bugs in there, I don't need a $500 stool test and put the person through the, you know, kind of the embarrassment and uncomfortable experience of doing a stool test. Exactly. So does, does that help kind of give you an example of where the testing is not needed? What is needed is an understanding of the symptoms that the body is generating. Is this a bad question? Like, do doctors get a kind of a kickback for doing all that monetary? Well, so yeah, no, this is a great question that I did want to discuss. So, so most doctors are going to mark up the lab work. So if the lab is going to charge the doctor a hundred dollars, for the lab, what is the doctor going to charge the patient? So usually there is a markup for sure. And so a lot of like medical doctors will advertise themselves as a functional medicine practitioner. Chiropractors will advertise themselves as a functional medicine practitioner. And those two professions are integrated into the insurance industry. So they don't get paid a lot when you go in for an appointment. When you go into a chiropractic appointment and your insurance is footing the bill, the chiropractor gets very little for that appointment. And so the chiropractor can supplement his or her income by having you do all of this testing that may cost, you know, $1,000 and you're paying $2,000. And the supplements, a lot of, and the supplements. Yeah. I've been to a lot of chiropractors, a lot of chiropractors that, I mean, I haven't been to a lot of chiropractors, but a lot of them have a supplement shop right in their lobby. Absolutely. And most of the supplement companies will allow the practitioner to private label the supplements. So this means that I kind of, you know, I make a brand, you know, Dr. Leslie's you know, therapeutics, and I make a little logo and a label. And then the supplement company, it'll be their supplements, but it'll have my label on it. That's called private labeling. And so then you don't know what it actually is. So you couldn't buy that through other distributors because it has my unique name on it. And so then I could charge anything I want for that. And it lends to making you look like an even bigger expert. Don't you think like when you see your doctor's name on a bottle, you're like, oh, they even have their own supplements. Like, yes, (laughs) right. Exactly. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to blow the lid off of this one. So very, very, very few doctors have formulated their own supplements. When you go into a practitioner's office and they have their own supplement line, quote unquote, they are private labeling another company's 
supplements. So, you know, it's the same, say Metagenics will do this for you. So it's the same Metagenics product, but it just has the doctor's unique label on it. So yeah, it kind of makes it look like, oh, wow, this person, wow, they must have really spent years, you know, researching this and formulating it and finding a manufacturer. No, 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 no. Vast, vast majority of practitioners, when they are selling something with their label on it, they are private labeling an existing supplement brand. It's so interesting. And yeah, I mean, I can't blame a person because I do believe, you know, business owners have things that they have to do to make money. And there is a purpose for marketers. <laughs> you know, that's part of my background. I can't fault them for it. But is it really in the best interest of the person who's suffering? I don't know. Well, you know, again, this, you know, you ask the question, what do I do differently? So number one, when I'm working in those first and second principles, what I call the first and second principles, I'm actually listening to the symptoms that are being generated by my clients' bodies and interpreting those and using my knowledge of physiology and biochemistry and pathology, right? I'm not shipping it off to a lab and having a lab tell me what's going on. I'm actually using my accumulated knowledge to interpret what's going on here. Where is the breakdown occurring based on these symptoms? You can determine that if you have studied physiology and biochemistry and pathology. It's, you, you can determine that. It's, it's obvious from known physiology and pathology what's going on. I wonder if, if it's like a lot of those doctors probably know a lot. I'm not, I'm not questioning their knowledge, but I wonder if part of it is just like a, a shortcut. You know what I mean? Like rather than digging deep and spending my time as a doctor there, I'm just going to ship off this lab, you know? Part of that is that. I mean, there's, there's an incentive, right? Again, particularly when practitioners relying on insurance to pay the bill, they don't get paid that much by insurance companies. So they've got to have people coming in and out the door, right? So they don't have time to do an in-depth analysis. So that's one reason to outsource it. The other reason too, is that it's an income source due to the markup on the labs. And then three, again, culturally, we think that lab work is quote unquote scientific and data filled right? And so if you have a printout that looks, you know, official from another company, from a lab, this is what's going on. People really like that. So I think it's a combination of those three things that is, that motivates people, motivates practitioners to use the labs. But then the other thing that I do differently is what I call the third principle, which is restoring our resiliency and vitality. And this is where the healing takes place within this third principle. And when I say this, people are kind of shocked to hear this, right? Because we would assume that if we correct things on the physical level of the body, that we would feel better physically, but that's not the case. It's our resiliency and vitality that keeps this entire complicated system that we are. We have a physical body of 30 to 40 trillion cells. We have a mental and emotional aspect that ties into our physical body. Our physical body ties into our mental and emotional aspect. And there's an organizing energy that we call vitality in naturopathic medicine that keeps everything in homeostasis, in balance, in a state of health. And if you don't restore that, people actually don't feel better. It's fascinating. It's very fascinating. So you have to, and this is why naturopathic medicine, when practiced properly, and again, I'm very, very fortunate to have 
been mentored by some of the, you know, what we call elder docs in the profession who actually understand what real naturopathic medicine is and how to restore the sick to health. You have to operate on all three of these principles in the right way for the individual person, in the right order, but you have to be working within these three principles in order for the body to return to health. And unfortunately, there are many naturopathic doctors, even though even though they have the same degree I have, they do not understand this. And it's very unfortunate. Yeah, I think that that third principle is somewhat of a mystery. I, that's kind of why I went a little quieter than normal. <laughs> I was, I'm over here contemplating vitality. <laughs> you know, that's a, it's a very abstract concept, I think. It's not something you can like put your hands on or have a lab result for or, you know, anything. So it's harder for me to contemplate, like, what exactly does that mean? Or how do I know if it's not restored or restored? It's just something you can't measure. You cannot measure it with a lab test. But those of us that are prone to migraines, we actually can, we have a unique ability to feel where our vitality is. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why I think those of us that are prone to migraines are a little bit better off <laughs> than the general public. <laughs> and if you're struggling right now with very severe chronic migraines, you probably get irritated with me when I say that. But when you're feeling better, you realize what I'm saying. Yeah. So, <laughs> but there's an organizing energy to every living system. So if you think of a beehive, so you have, I'm not a bee expert. How many bees are in a hive? 5,000 bees, maybe. Individual actors, individual insects, and somehow the honey gets made. There's an organizing energy to that beehive. There's an organizing energy to ecosystems that keeps the ecosystem in homeostasis. And there's an organizing energy that keeps us in homeostasis. And we are way more complicated than a beehive. Because again, we have our physical and mental and emotional and spiritual aspects. We're unbelievably complex. What keeps all those balls in the air? What keeps everything humming? What keeps everything in balance and homeostasis? That's the organizing energy that when you, when you become aware of the concept, then you can start to see it play out on earth, on life on earth. And I like to use the analogy of a needle pointing north. So when we are in a state of health, it's like our needle is pointing north. And when our needle is pointing north, we don't have symptoms. We feel good. Now, our needle is continuously getting knocked down towards west by stressors. Physical stressors like being in an accident would be a physical stressor. A workout would be a physical stressor. Barometric pressure changes put a physical stressor on our body. And then there are mental and emotional stressors. Those stressors are continuously pushing our needle towards west. It's our own resiliency and vitality that counters that and keeps the needle pointing north and us continuing to feel well in the face of those inevitable stressors. So those of us that are prone to migraines, when our needle points northwest, now we're in migraine zone and then our body is going to generate a migraine. Other people, when their needle is pointing northwest, they, their body generates other symptoms. Migraines is a very obvious symptom, <laughs> unlike hypertension, 
you know, your blood pressure has to get very, very high for you to be physically aware of that. But migraines, right? We can feel, you can, like those of us that are prone to migraines, we can kind of feel where our needle is. Oh yeah, I can kind of feel like I'm going to, something's going to happen. And then maybe an hour later, oh, I feel better. Okay. I'm kind of out of it now. And then maybe later in the day, uh-oh, I feel something. Right? I hate we- the right before a migraine thing. Cause you like, there's no way to describe it. There's no explanation, but you just feel feel it coming and it's like the weirdest thing you're like "Uh oh I feel it you know I I don't even know how to explain it but even before my vision starts going out it's like I feel something's coming Uh uh-huh I call it the uh uh-oh moment yeah (laughs) exactly Uh (laughs) I had my one of my last migraines like I've told you guys before I don't get them very often but often enough that I get it you know and I think I was at Old Navy shopping and had the uh-oh moment. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to drive home, you know? So I was panicking and asking my friends if they had an Excedrin because, you know, of course I had nothing else, no other way to fix it at that time. But yeah, that uh-oh is not fun. <laughs> and so that's right when the needle comes onto the edge of our migraine zone. So we can feel that. We can kind of feel where our needle is. It's very interesting. And that's where we are. we are gifted. I'm going to call it a gift. I would like to return this gift. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Package it up and give it to the in-laws next year for Christmas. (laughs) I love my in-laws. That was totally a joke. (laughs) Anyways. So we have to restore our resiliency and vitality. And most of that work is work on the mental and emotional side of us. So in order to restore our health, yes, we have to have the physical physiology in place. We have to have the needs of our physiology and biochemistry met for sure, but we also have to take into account the mental and emotional aspect of ourselves. And this is where I get all goofy and excited about, because you know me, I'm such a psychology nerd, but like we were talking a few episodes ago about that book called The Body Keeps Score, and I've been reading it and I don't know, it just barely is like in this day and age, we're just barely getting the tip of the iceberg of how much our body and emotions are tangled up together in how we feel physically and emotionally. It's incredible to think about. And I think we're just barely touching the surface. Right. We bear, we have the barest of barest understandings. In fact, most people won't even acknowledge that it's a possibility that we could feel something in the physical body that starts off for us on the mental and emotional side. And I was just reading today in there that I can't remember the exact statistics, of course, but just there's a ridiculously big amount of people who suffer from fibromyalgia or other autoimmune disorders that have had major trauma. Like you don't really realize that, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Most chronic migraine sufferers have a history of trauma. Absolutely. If we are in mental and emotional pain, why wouldn't we experience physical pain? right? When we experience physical pain, we experience mental and emotional pain. We can say, oh, you know, I I, I mean, people get a post-traumatic response because of the physical pain of migraines. That happens all the time. When people have migraines for long enough, they develop a post-traumatic anxiety response. Why wouldn't they? I know. I love how you've responded in the group a few times, like people talking about depression and anxiety coming from having chronic migraines. And you're like, well, of course you would. Like, that's 
a hard thing to deal with all the time, you know? Right. It would be kind of weird if somebody could be struck down by pain at any moment of the day and, you know, yeah, no, I never feel anxious about not feeling well. I feel, I feel great, easy breezy, well. right? <laughs> of course people are going to have anxiety when they wake up, right? I've experienced myself. Oh, geez, another day. Okay, I feel good now, but at three o'clock, you know, I got this big thing I got to do. I don't, I mean, of course people are going to develop a post-traumatic anxiety response. Of course people are going to feel depressed if they can't interact with their family and they're missing out on, you know, life's most important moments, of course, they're going to be depressed. That would be a normal response. So we can acknowledge, right, that we could develop mental and emotional symptoms because of how we physically have felt. But people are very resistant to considering that they could be having physical pain because of something on the mental and emotional side. But it's almost always the case. I can't say it's 100% of the time, but it's almost always the case. I think it comes from a place of how many times have people been told XYZ medical condition is in your head? Like, I think that's such enough. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm being a little bit of a soapbox person here. But like, that's such an offensive feeling when you're like, no, I'm genuinely suffering. And you just told me it's in my head, you know, so people don't want to be told that they're dealing with physically has anything to do with their psychology or emotions or anything because it it makes them feel like it's not real. Well, and and people say that, oh, well, it's all in your head or, you know, I think you should go see a shrink because I don't know what else to do with you, right? People say that because they do not understand that we can feel real physical symptoms that are starting on the mental and emotional side of us. Right. Because if you understood that you could have a real physical cluster of symptoms that is being generated on the mental and emotional aspect of someone, you would not make that statement. The statement is really an offhanded way of it can't be mental and emotional. You must be making it up. Right. You there isn't there's no legitimate mental and emotional reason for this to happen. You must be making it up. You must be doing it to yourself. The person who makes that statement does not understand the connection between all aspects of ourselves, which is really sad. And honestly, like, I just want to give all of the migraine warriors a shout out for how many times they've probably heard that very thing and just that it's not, it's not in their head, it's valid, like you're really are suffering and it's okay to continue to look for somebody to help you. Like we shouldn't be dismissive of people's pain at all. Right. And we have to be open to looking at mental and emotional causes of physical pain. Like I say, it's not part of everyone's healing journey, but it's going to be part of most people's healing journey from chronic migraines. And I think there's a stigma that goes along with the whole, I think, gosh, it seems like about, I don't know, 50 years or so of if you get therapy or mental health help, it's because something's wrong with you. And I think it's getting better. Like it's less stigmatized than it used to be, but you know, we're just barely starting to make those shifts now too, I think. Yeah. And the other problem too is, is that when people go to therapy, the therapist is not thinking of the physical body. The therapist is just thinking about the mental and emotional aspect. You go into the doctor, the chiropractor, the acupuncturist, the naturopathic doctor, they're just thinking the physical body. You go into the therapist, they're just thinking the mental and emotional body. You have to integrate all of the 
aspects of ourselves. And this is what I have dedicated my life to really understanding because I had to do it for my own migraines. And so when I work with people, we're not just working in these boxes. We are really integrating this, the entire aspect of ourselves. Because what I have found too is therapists don't understand how to sort of unhook the physical, you know, the physical symptoms from what's going on mentally and emotionally. So this has to be done on a very integrated level, truly integrated level, not kind of lip service integration. It just makes so much sense to treat a whole person. Isn't it interesting? Like, it just hit me. There's so many specialists for the body and the, the mind. But like we have a gynecologist and a urologist and a nephrologist and a, like every single body part has their own specialist. So being that the medical field is set up like that, it's almost natural to assume that everything is separate and that nothing affects each other. You know what I mean? Like, and then it goes a whole other level with therapy and psychology because those aren't even really technically considered connected to the medical field, really. Or connected to the physical body. Exactly. Interesting. Well, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I just thinking back to the whole functional medicine thing, it's really interesting to see how you know, you are definitely checking those two first boxes, but like there's that whole other layer that functional medicine is missing. Correct. And I would say too, you know, how they check those first two boxes, as you say, is with unnecessary and ridiculous (laughs) supplementation, (laughs) right? Because it's more driven by manipulating the biochemistry than actually restoring the organ function that is blocked, that's creating a blocker in those areas. So, you know, again, just because there's some commonalities between what I call the first two principles and what I do, even even when I work in that, it's not, I don't have the same approach. So, you know, I hope this was helpful to people. A wide variety of practitioners will practice under the functional medicine umbrella. So you have a lot of medical doctors being trained by the Institute for functional medicine, because medical doctors, just as just as disillusioned as the general public is with medical doctors and the medical system, medical doctors are just as disillusioned with their own system. So they are looking for different ways to practice. And so the marketing behind functional medicine seems, you know, seems very appealing to conventional medical practitioners. So you will find them practicing it, chiropractors, naturopathic doctors, health coaches. So we did, I talked about, right, I talked about health coaches and sort of poorly trained lay practitioners in the podcast called The Dark Secret of Behind Naturopathic Medicine. So there's a wide, wide gamut of practitioners that will get this. It's like a certification that you get from the Institute of Functional Medicine. And then there are a lot of offshoot little organizations that'll do this type of training. And so that's all, again, unregulated. And the quality of the training is going to vary tremendously depending on the organization that's doing it. And it's kind of a big money grab because these organizations that train the practitioners, they charge for that, right? So they're making money off of the fees that the practitioners are paying to be trained. I'm just going to guess slash hope and pray (laughs) that 50 years from now, we are going to see more integration between all of these fields in a more legitimate way than what we see right now. We're getting cross fingers, right? (laughs) And even bigger cross fingers that it won't take 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. Well, very good. I hope this was helpful. 
I, well, I learned a lot. Good. <laughs> Even if I'm the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thank you for listening. And before you go, be sure to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. And do you have somebody in your life who would benefit from what we talked about today? If so, please share it. And if you'd like to stay connected, join my free Facebook group with over 11,000 women who are rediscovering a migraine-free life. Go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar ND on Facebook or HealingMigrainesNaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the group. Well, thank you, Mary. Thanks yeah. again. We'll talk soon. And thank you for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and other popular podcast platforms. Do you have someone in your life who would benefit from what we talked about today? Please share it with them. Share on your social media. Share within other migraine Facebook groups that you are in. We really want to get the word out that you can recover your health and stop getting chronic migraines. And if you want to stay connected, join my free migraine Facebook group with over 11,000 women who are rediscovering a migraine-free life. Go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, on Facebook or to HealingMigrainesNaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the Facebook group.